Welcome to Season 2, Episode 75 of the Banded About podcast series. Joining me in the engine room this week is an Adelaide-born musician who spent many years playing in South Australia prior to moving to Sydney, where he spent over 20 years playing and working as a live audio engineer. During his time in Sydney, he worked with many of the big names in the Australian music industry, as well as many international acts. He is an accomplished drummer, songwriter, and the father of a recent Banded About podcast series guest. But before I introduce today's guest, it's first time for me to play the Banded About theme song, which was written and recorded for the Banded About podcast series by the very talented Catherine Lambert and Michael Mitzi Bryant. Pleasure to welcome Willie Goodwine. Thank you for making time to chat with me today, Will. Well, thanks, Di. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to having a chat. Excellent. Let's start from the beginning. Yep. Where were you born? I was actually born in Adelaide um, mm. to European parents who both come from, well, basically out of Germany. So uh, I'm an Ad- old Adelaide boy. Excellent. Did either of your parents or anyone else in your family come from a musical background? I don't have a great deal of knowledge about um, the background of my grandparents and stuff, mainly because they've always been in Europe and my, it was only my mum and dad my sister and myself here. My dad was a 50-year member of the Adelaide Male Choir, the Liedertafel, um, so mm. he was a tenor singer. Um, you know, and they actually actually toured overseas as well. So, um, and then I've actually got a couple of cousins who play in a band, sort of a prog rocky sort of band, in and they're in Serbia. So, so there's a bit of musicality somewhere in the in the genes, you know. But uh, that's all I really know about. My mum was always into music, but um, she was never a performer or anything like that, but she just loved music, played music all the time, you know, so it was good. Yeah. Always encouraged. Excellent. So, Willie, what led to or who influenced you to start playing drums? Um, funnily enough, something came up the other day on Facebook feed, which was an old Sandy Nelson recording. I don't know whether people remember Sandy Nelson, sort of in the 60s. But I remember seeing stuff on TV like Gene Krupa and Sandy Nelson. I'm probably showing my age here now, but um, I don't know. I've always just always wanted to play the drums, um, and those guys sort of inspired me more to play. So, um, and then when I got a bit older, it was probably the Who um, I sort of got into. So, yeah, I'm not really. Sh- I know it goes back a very very early memory, um, so I don't know. I just just always seem to want to want to do it and get on with it. You know? Yeah, fair enough. So when did you get your first set of drums? I didn't get a drum kit until I was fourteen. My dad, for some reason, didn't think drums were a real instrument, so uh, he was a bit unsupportive around actually getting me a drum kit. I took my mum into buying me one when I was 14. But when I was in primary school, I actually studied classical piano um, mm. through, in those days, it was done through the Conservatory of Music. So although it was weird as well in that 
um, you could either choose music or sport. You weren't allowed to do both. It was sort of fun. Yeah. Sort of funny. Yeah. Um, so I chose piano um, and, yeah, sort of, so I did that all through primary school. And sort of when I left, it was a bit like, oh, mum, you know, like I've done that, so can I, you know, sort of get a drum kit? And I'd always mucked around and had drumsticks and all that, but I never actually had a kit. I had a snare drum um, from when I was younger, and my dad bought me and sort of played around on that. But my full kit was when I was probably, would have been 14 for sure. Okay. So where did you go to high school? Uh, Finden High which wasn't a musical school at all. They didn't even have a musical department at all or a musical class or anything. Again, my dad wanted me to be a doctor or something, you know, brain surgeon or something. <laughs> so they sort of sent me to Finden High. It was disappointing because, you know, I was getting into music and then there was no support there. And I think part of the problem you get all well is I sort of got into a bit of sport and Music got a bit left by the wayside, I agree, and sort of my circle of friends were not really musical, playing anything, so so it was a bit hit and miss, really, for a few years there. Yeah. Did you manage to have any lessons outside of school? I did. Once Mum bought me the drum kit, Dad sort of gave in, and I had a few some lessons, actually, at the Adelaide College of Music, and sort of up on King William Street there. I don't know how long. It wasn't a real long time, but I was a bit, probably because it had been that long since I was getting excited and it was a bit like, I'm not sure I really want to learn a cha-cha. I said, I want to get into some you know, some hard rock drumming, you know. I said, let's do some Who, some Keith Moon or something. So I sort of learnt some basics and then really taught myself after that. Okay. So what was the first band that you joined? Well, actually, I started my own band, funnily enough. Okay, yeah. I was about 15, I suppose, um, and there was some friends. There was a guy that played bass guitar and a guy that played guitar, and so we sort of formed this – well, actually, it was a bit of an original band more than anything. It was a bit like we are sort of doing our own thing, which was sort of funny. We had no idea what we were doing, but anyway, it was sort of we did, and I think we did a couple of covers, and it was a band called The Ancient Inheritors, and um, I've still got a fond picture of it hanging up in my studio, actually, so – I can't believe how young I look, you know, and how small the drum kit is. So, yeah. <laughs> but oddly enough, I've always actually played predominantly in original bands. Um, I've never actually ever really played in a serious cover band. Um, so it's sort of interesting through my career. I don't know, sort of just the way it worked out, I think, you know. Yeah. Okay. Can you remember your first gig? When we had the Ancient Heritage, we sort of played in, in a little hall where we'd practice sometimes and people would come in, so it wouldn't be a real gig. Lots of people would rock up sometimes. Didn't really do an actual gig gig till I was about 18, 19. It was at the Gilbert Hotel, sort of <laughs> in the front bar in the corner. I don't know whether anybody remembers the Gilbert, it's still there. Uh, although it doesn't have bands for years, eh? it's not big enough, but. Yeah, it was just a really, really small little gig, you know, just friends and, you know, it was sort of good fun. Yeah. Can you remember your first major gig? My first major gig? Yeah, I was in a band uh, with uh, Laurie Treadray from the old Treadray's Music Exchange and the early incarnation of Dawn Patrol and the first gig I did with them was actually a support at the Bridgeway, so it was pretty full on, and we were playing with the Uncanny X-Men. I remember the gig, but I think it's because it was so full on and for me at the time, and I was a bit, you know, like out of it, and I sort of remember bits and pieces of it, but there was also a lot of vague stuff going on there about that gig, and I think I was just overwhelmed, you know, so. <laughs> the old Bridgeway in the day used to pack them out, eh, you know, so. Oh, yeah, Definitely. It's quite a large venue. Mm, mm, I was as nervous as, you know, like all about my playing and I'm going to make a mistake, you know, like all that stuff, you know. So, mm. so interestingly, I sort, of, I sort of remember everything more about getting there and being at the gig and after playing. I don't actually remember the actual playing, playing. Again, I reckon I was just totally overwhelmed, eh? You know? Yeah. You know, so, so, yeah, uh, but that was probably not a bad start. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, Willie, what was the first job that you had when you left school? Uh, I was a, an apprentice butcher, butcher small goods maker, mm. yeah. Yeah, so hated it. Luckily, it only lasts six months. 
what it was is they some of the preservatives they used to use in the smorgas and all that would get in my cuts and I'd, I'd, I was actually allergic to it. So it was a bit like, oh, you know, better get out of this and change careers. And I got a, after that it was a, um, like a traineeship with um, Repco Auto Parts. Sort of yeah. working in sort of the spare parts area. Do you have a memorable gig story that you'd like to share? Memorable gig? I've been a few, um, luckily. Oh, actually, we were talking the other day, um, just the guys, and just talking about different gigs and places and all that. One of the most memorable gigs we had actually with this current band, although we were, what we were doing is we had this sort of side project called Stone Crow and we're doing sort of Budgie, White Snake and Aussie. And mm-hmm. so we put a night together at the art centre in Port Nalunga and it was fairly packed out and I remember it was just sort of, it was because it was a big stage, really nice room, good PA, sort of big lights and all that. And there was lots of people there and it was just sort of, they're all down the front and it was just like a good good old pub rock gig where a lot of people knew each other, everybody was really enjoying themselves, you know, there was sort of no grief going on, no nothing. Everybody's down the front rocking, you know what I mean? So it was sort of like yeah. a classic pub rock gig that used to be around. Um, and I think it's that camaraderie that, you know, like in my day when I was younger, that's what went on. You know, you'd go to a pub to see a band and everybody would meet up and it would be a social thing as much as anything else. Um, mm. It'd be great camaraderie, you know, as everybody just getting into the music, you know. So, it was, yeah, that was, that was sort of a just a classic gig for that, you know. So um, came up the other day and I went, yeah, you know, I, I remember the energy that was in the room was really, really, really good. And oh, another memorable gig. And again, energy-wise and all that's when uh, I was in Sydney because I was there for 20 years. The last band I had in Sydney was a band called Taurus Run and we'd just done a five-track EP with Peter Blyton who had just come off the back of doing Run to Paradise with Choir Boys. And we had – it was going overseas and been released and it was sort sort of moving along quite nicely. So we did a showcase gig. At the well, spring it was called Springfields then. We used to be the old Mansell Room, exactly the same place, just changed names. And same thing. It was just one of those nights where there was a lot of industry people there, but there was a lot of people from other bands, um, and then a really good crowd. And it just sort of, I suppose, because it was a celebration of the EP, sort of um, uh, hitting sort of Europe, mainly Germany, was sort of getting some really good feedback and radio play. Again, just sort of went off. Um, and again, I think it was Springfield's Mansell Room was always an interesting place that it was the same thing. It was um, a lot of camaraderie in the place. And, you know, you could be Joe Blog or, you know, you could be Susie DeMarchi or you could be Ivor Davies. It made no difference in there. You were just all a bunch of musos. And... Um, Everybody was there for the music and everybody supported each other. It was just, just really, really, really good. Really fond memory for me, that's for sure. And I remember I played well, so that was good. <laughs> oh, well, that helps. <laughs> I was on fire. I was going well. And I, oh, the whole band was actually, so it was the same thing. You pick up on that energy, eh, you know. But, um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, no, it was, that, was, that was really good as well. Now, you just mentioned then how you were based in Sydney mm-hmm. for 20 years yeah. and you were working both as a musician and sound engineer. What was yep. it that made you decide to make the move? Um, well, when I joined Dawn Patrol in Adelaide, it sort of it had run its course as it was and it got re-put together um, with Bob Armstrong, who was the original sort of founder of the band, uh, with a sort of a new lineup, um, doing some of the old songs, but doing new songs, mm. and we uh, we had a mutual friend. I don't know whether you remember band heavy sort of out there band called Escape here in Adelaide. They were sort of guys, uh, John the Beast and all that. People would know him mm. um, and Anthony and all that. And they were sort of they well they had management in Sydney, and you know we're doing really well and um, going over there and that and. Our singer came from Gawler, so he knew those guys really well, and I became good friends with John. Um, and he said, oh, you know, you should come over and do some shows. And so we did. We went over there for three weeks and just sort of stayed stayed there. And 
did some supports and all that and it was quite well received and really good. So, you know, the agency said, oh, well, you know, you come back, you know, sort of we'll give you some work and management were interested at the time. So we did. We just sort of went, oh, well, okay, let's go. And six of us plus three road crew, we sort of, we all packed up and went over there and, you know, just to see how it would pan out. And luckily we got signed. By management, we had an agency, and then we had Sony Records on board coming on. Well, they come on board later, but um, so sort of, you know, just sort of fell in place. And the advantage was that in those days, with the touring circuit that was around, um, you know, the agencies would go, Well, okay, look, you can, we'll take you up to Brisbane, you can do some original shows, but on the way, you can learn 12 covers and you can play these sort of town gigs and clubs and all that along the way, which is what we did. So you'd spend a few weeks on the road, you'd play five, six nights a week, and the beauty was that although we didn't get rich, but it paid our rent and mm. that allowed us to be full-time musicians. You know, Everybody sort of had part-time work here and there between things, but basically you could you were earning enough money to you know pay the rent. You know, We had two share houses. And, you know, we'd go to the, um, into a studio every Monday, sort of for eight hours, and we'd either rehearse or be recording or writing or something. But you could sort of actually be a full-time musician, you know? So, yeah. you know, which is pretty rare to do today, you know? So it's only because those opportunities were there. The work was there. The touring circuits were there, eh, you know? Yeah. You know, it's from mid to late 80s. About 90 when sort of that stuff stopped and I sort of got more into um, sound engineering work, actually. Yeah. Okay. So what got you interested in doing live sound engineering? I'd always had a small PO system and, you know, fumbled around and, I don't know, just sort of quite enjoyed mixing and luckily when I was in Sydney... We had people like a guy called Aaron Chug, who's one of the Chuggies. Uh, he was our sound engineer. He's one of the top sound engineers around at the time. He was our sound guy and just I learned from him and then I had another guy that sort of mentored me a bit and I just sort of picked it up and it actually it paid reasonably well. Uh, I had enough sort of contacts so I could sort of work for reasonably sort of good bands that were earning sort of reasonable money. Yeah. And so it became part, you know, pay the rent um, and then part fun as well. Although interestingly, a lot of the times I'll sit there and I go, oh, I wouldn't mind being behind the drum kit on the other side. You know? mm, but, mm. Um, but then eventually it sort of got to the point where I sort of was buying more gear and I was getting more work and live work and Tourist run sort of had, had sort of run its course only because the singer had sort of had a, you know, it was a classic rock and roll story of a split the dummy and all that. So um, I just sort of went more into the audio work and again through contacts and then I started working for some of the real big bands and people like, um, uh, you know, like Mondo Rock and Ross Wilson did a lot of stuff with them and Indigenous Music Awards I did for seven years and. So a lot of Indigenous artists and all that. So, again, I was just a bit lucky around. I suppose I knew what I was doing or bluffing my way through it, but um, I had the contacts to be able to go work for bands again that were sort of pulling reasonable money with there for I could charge reasonable money, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. But I always kept my hand in playing and writing. So, um, but there for a while there, for probably, you know, Quite a few years, five or six years. My main gig was actually audio engineering. I was touring around the country a lot, actually. Awesome. Hmm. So you eventually came back to Adelaide. Yes. And yes. what motivated that move? My dad was getting getting old and frail. My sister lives in Sydney as well, and then uh, my mum had passed away. So my dad had nobody really. So. I sort of thought about it and I went, ah, I'll see if I can sell the production company. Now, they're really hard things to sell. So, you know, and I put it out there, sort of got an agent on board and all that. And actually, that I, I actually sold it to Greg Page from the Wiggles. So, oh, there you right. go. Yeah. So, um, and he sort of got someone to come in and run it. So, I was, again, I lucked out there and I went, okay. Um, it all happened pretty quick. 
So he went, hmm, well, and the band wasn't doing anything. Um, so I went, well, should go back. And also one of the decisions was that my lad Sam was about to go into high school. And was like, so do we stay in Sydney? Because if we do, he needs to stay all the way through high school and, you know, didn't want to disrupt his learning, this, that and the other, so mm. or do we go back and start uh, in Adelaide? And so we moved back and uh, I took a two-year hiatus. I actually had worked out when I got back that I'd been on the road basically either playing or with audio for 13 years without a real break. So I didn't really want to get back into music. Mm. I sort of thought purposely that I would take time out and actually I sort of did some study and that was good because it gave me that break. And the good thing is that that re-energised me and I was sort of, and I knew what I wanted to do. I was like, well, I want to get behind the kit. I want to do, write some more songs. Do, I want to be involved in music from that angle again. And I started also building my studio, which was sort of originally started out of this big live room just so that we could rehearse in that because I still had a fair bit of other gear. And... Uh, uh, well, let's turn into a bit of a mammoth now. So there's a big control room at the front and all that. It's a you know, full-on sort of recording studio. But but the good thing is I'm actually now back playing with guys I played with when I left Adelaide. Yeah. The circle turns. It's a bit like we've got to put the band back together. So the guitarist and I had always remained friends. He actually went to Canada and lived there for 17 years when I was in Sydney. And we'd always just been friends and then he'd moved back. I'm not sure why he came back, but he did. And then um, he was like, oh, come on, will you? Let's have a jam. Come on, just put the band back together, you know. And I was hanging off, hanging off, hanging off. And then one day we we did. We just started jamming. And it was a bit like, geez, it's just like going back to when we were 18. I was like, we're doing the same old dirty stuff we were doing then. I couldn't believe it. Mm. So, so what we did is we started doing some covers to sort of get us out of that, you know, move us along a bit and then um, started writing and he was always a really really great guitarist but never once he went to Canada he never played in bands he never sort of did anything he got involved in computers actually uh, but he was always a really really talented riff orientated guy you know like so yeah so we sort of started a band and there we are that's where a load of Billy comes from then the original bass player that played with us when we were younger Came and saw us at a gig. Uh, we actually had a hired gun, hired bass player in because the original bass player had left. And we sort of said, oh, what are you doing? And he said, oh, well, I'm playing trumpet in a church band and playing drums in this, that and the other. And I went, oh, you better come and, you know, get the bass guitar out, mate, you know. So there you are. So the three of us sort of fired up and yeah, that's, that's how Lord of Billy started and we're still together. So, and it's amazing that the camaraderie and the energy and the music is actually still there. You know? Yeah. But I find that's great with musicians. You know, you can work with somebody. Like when I was audio engineering, you know, I'd sort of, I'd do a tour with Ross and Mondo Rock, and then I might not see him for 12 months. And then you go back and it's like you saw him yesterday, eh? You know? Yeah. Music's got this great camaraderie, I reckon, you know, and sort of no bullshit to a degree, eh? You know? Yeah. Like sort of. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has. Hmm, hmm, yeah. yeah, that's right. You know, like it's sort of, um, it's, it's always kept me in. You know, it can be hard work being in a band, let's face it, or doing anything in music, but I think if you've got that camaraderie going and you're all sort of sharing the load and and then ultimately you're creatively, you know, you writing together is, is I, I like to write with other people, although I'll sit down and I'll write a you know, like a three-bar one because I'm the world's worst guitarist. <laughs> um, I, I'll write a lyric and a melody. That's sort of probably what I'm a lot better at. But I love to work with other people, so it's a bit like, well, here's the, you know, the foundation of the song and I just like to hand it over to others and um, let it evolve. And, yeah. and our, our album, that's how, you know, when, when we wrote all those songs, that's what they did. Trevor basically writes the riffs. He's a great riff player and he'd sort of come up with a basic verse and a chorus and um, I'd put a melody to it, you know, it'd be a really simple form song to start with and then we'd sort of start jamming it out as the band um, and people would contribute and it, and it would become, it's sort of natural because mm. they just, they just 
putting it out there, you know, as opposed to me having some preconceived idea what the baseline should be, you know. So, you know, and then you've got to work on it. And we always record and sort of listen back and well, that bit's good, you know, yada, yada. And I do all the arrangements because I produce the album. But um, it's still everybody's input is there, you know, and sort of I think I think that comes out in a band as well. You know, when you go and see a live band, if, you know, if the players are really strong and creative amongst each other, it definitely comes out, eh? Yeah, you know? for sure. You can you can hear it and you can feel it. Yeah, you know? so, yeah, you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what makes you know a really hot band. You know, you just just energy. It's just you know like you're up there with them. You know, like yeah, it's fantastic. I reckon. Excellent. So, when did the rehearsal space become Loud Toys Studio? Yeah. Oh, it's been up and running as a studio for about four years now, mm-hmm. I suppose. It started 10 years ago, so like I said, it was sort of done in two job lots. And my lad Sam, who you've interviewed. Yes. <laughs> he now, he sort of runs the studio because I, I, I built it as a legacy for him as well. To me, the studios, I do my own projects in there and I mix stuff for other people, but I'm more about, I do my own thing. I just love it when people come in. So like Sam's band, Wolf and Chain. They're in there all the time. That's their headquarters. You know, they write in there. They just had a big writing session, actually. So to me, that's what it's about, you know. Otherwise, what's the point of me building it? I don't sort of, you know, I'm older now. I don't I don't need a commercial studio to pay the rent. It's, it's more around come on down and we get young bands in and uh, it's about helping people out because I had all those opportunities myself when I was young. So hopefully we can pass a few on to others, you know. So I'm old school, so it's a hybrid studio. It's, um, we record everything analog, and I've got a lot of vintage gear and I've got some uh, some pretty nice stuff, a lot of beautiful mics and stuff. So and then we sort of dump it all into Pro Tools, so we can sort of play around, so we can go, you know, sort of digital as well. So yeah, yeah, you know, not sort of so um, just good to give people that experience because the thing is these days. See, everybody's got a computer program at home, so people tend to do a lot of stuff on their own computer, which is not the same as playing live in a you know in a room and recording, if you know what I mean. You know, so yeah. enjoy allowing people to you know, have that experience. No, that's great. Come on down if you know anybody. <laughs> we will include the links to the studio in the show notes of Willie's interview as well. So. Anybody that is interested in going down and doing some recording, they'll be able to do that, get in contact with you. Yeah, yeah, that'll be appreciated. Fabulous. Okay, Willie, is there a band that you wish that you'd had the opportunity to play with? Well, Budgie, probably. Budgie's been a big influence on us. I never thought it was going to be a reality because they never, ever came to Australia and it was only 2009 or 2010 they came out here, but before that we thought, well, I'd never see them. One of the other bands I would, would really love to have played with as well is, and a band that had a big influence on is is Rush. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, Neil Pearl on the drum kit, obviously, but just the whole band in general. So, so yeah, there's two of them. Actually never seen Rush, but I have seen Budgie, and it was fantastic. It was at the Gov, you know, so it was really, really, really good. Awesome. How do you prepare yourself before a show? Depends if I've – a lot of the times we don't have a lot of time, um, so not very well. If I've got a little bit of – little bit of freedom of time I'll sort of sit down and what I try and do is relax I think um, in the old days I used to sort of have a drum pad and I'd sort of do some rudiments and you know, all that stuff you know like I, I sort of I don't really do that anymore um, but what I find is if I can have a little bit of zen time a little bit of relax um, that really helps because no matter what as soon as I get behind the drum kit on a live show, the energy kicks in straight away for me. And in the first song, I find I can be quite tense because I'm just, you know, like some just overexcited or there's too much energy going on, you know. Mm. And all of a sudden, I get a cramp in my hand. I go, ah, you know, lighten up, will you? You know, sort of. And it comes good, but in a bit of quiet time, you know, if you can get it, you know, like sometimes multiple bills, you you're a bit buggered, you they throw you on. Um, you don't get time to think, let alone do anything else. So, mm. but I must admit, 
when we were touring a lot and all that, doing rudiments and just sort of playing around a bit and but again, being by yourself, sort of like try and find a bit of sort of time off to the side and even if it's a drum pad or whatever or it's a pillow, it doesn't really matter, get your sticks and just sort of, you know, just loosen up. Yeah. But I, I find doing it by yourself is important because you need that. You've got to sort of, you know, quieten the brain down a bit, you know, mm, and, sort mm. of, and sort of be comfortable and get your energy flowing and, yeah, and then sort of go on because, let's face it, I said when I walk on, it's like, you know, the energy just kicks in straight away. Whether there's two people there or 2,000, makes no difference. Yeah. I'm just off, you know, like sort of that's the way it is. That's great. Well, how has the pandemic impacted you? Actually, it hasn't been bad for us. Obviously, we miss playing, but it gave us the opportunity to sort of redo stuff on the album that we wanted to do um, and then get the mixes and that all happening. And then the other thing was we went, like Loaded Billy have always played two or three Budgie songs in this set. We've done it from day one just because we like Budgie and there was no real reason for it. And then what was happening is every time we'd do a gig, people would come up and go, oh, man, no one plays Budgie. That was great. And sort of this subculture closet Budgie people everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we went, oh, well, that's cool. So we just sort of kept doing it. And then people sort of said, well, you know, like, play more. Uh, we don't know anymore. So that's about the end of that. So with the pandemic and then we're going, well, you know, like we were mixing the album and all that, so we said, well, f- you know, we're going to get together every week like, like normal. Why don't we put a budgie set together? And that's what we did. So we learnt um, 12 budgie songs, mm-hmm. it's a project called Crash Course Budgie. I only got to do one gig. I was sort of in the middle of the pandemic when everything got sort of, it was one of those periods where it's, it looked like we might be, you know, seeing the other side. and Before it all shut down again, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's <laughs> yeah. right. We did this gig, and it was it was sort of a bit on the quiet, and it was at South Coast Raw actually at the Portland Football Club, and they could only have 110 in there, and we sold out. Sort of, like they just kept coming in, and there's people wearing these budgie shirts and all that. We're going, oh, what's going on here? You know, like sort of. So it was really good, and then we sort of got the tick of approval, I suppose, because. A lot of budgie people are right, you know, they they know their music, you know, yeah. so and you can't really bullshit your way through. And see, we play budgie because we really love it and we actually have that feel for it, I think, mm. I suppose, because we grew up on it. And it was sort of our, all of us were influenced. Trevor, the guitarist, and Gary, the bass player, and myself, you know, we've always just loved it. We used to buy all the imports, you know, sealed up and take them home and play them and and I think we just had a bit of a natural feel for it. And, and with Budgie, some of those bands, it's, it's more about the feel than it is about anything else, you know, although they're quite technical at times. Mm. But, yeah, so, so you know, we managed to do that. And we sort of, I suppose, kept us happy. But then it was then getting towards the end of last year, we are all getting, you know, everybody, same as everybody, you're going, what's going on? Are they going to open up, you know, sort of. Um, we want to get out there and gig, you know, we'd finish the album. We're still sitting on it at the moment, sort of again waiting up for just what's happened, where they open up restrictions and that, you know, so so we can get out and sort of promote it a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, thankfully things have just started to uh, ease again, which is nice. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, a lot of musicians I spoke to, you know, sort of individually or collectively, but more I reckon individually. I think a lot of bands have sort of bit fallen by the wayside. That's sort of impacted on them because they weren't rehearsing or anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's easy for people to lose the plot and then go off and do something else. But quite a few people I know, particularly writers and all that, have sort of, you know, they've done what we've done sort of sat home and write songs and just worked on things, you know, sort of plot along just... Next week, maybe it's going to be next week. You know, we're going to open up next week. You know, sort of. So uh, yeah, but it's it's it has hurt a lot of people, eh? Oh, it definitely has. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I've got friends of mine that have sound engineers that interstate and all that. Their their businesses have been decimated. You know, so Mm, mm. it's not very good, really. You know, so anyway. No, well, hopefully we're going to continue in the right direction now. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to. We just got to move on. The more people lose the fear factor, and it's 
luckily, um, you know, I, I think I've known eight, nine people now that have had COVID, and all of them, luckily, have had very mild symptoms, mm. you know, a bit of scratchy throat, you know, flu-like stuff. So hopefully that's what it is and, you know, that's how we need to treat it and we can sort of just all get on and get out there as well. Like you're saying, you know, it's about supporting That's right. We need people well. to come out now and that's right, support that's right. the bands. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's okay for us musicians to get out there, but uh, it's about getting Joe Blogg sort of, you know, sort of, I'm excited to go back out and see live stuff again, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's a problem, isn't it, when people get a bit too comfortable at home yep. for such a long period is it can be hard to convince them to come back out again. Absolutely, you know, so, and it's been a long time, so over two years, eh, so, you know, that's, that's wow, you know, so, anyway, we just, you know, keep our fingers crossed and it'll all work out now. Yep. Definitely. Well, it's good though because there's obviously been some positives there for you. Yeah, yeah. So that's always a good thing. And, you know, you managed to get your album finished and everything, so that's great. And Mm, now mm. you can hopefully get out there really soon and start um, promoting it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so uh, we're going to sort of work on that in the next few weeks. Look at how we're going to do that. Trevor, our guitarist, is in Canada at the moment. They, his wife's Canadian, and actually they they tend to spend four months ish, maybe a bit longer, a year over there. Usually our winter time. Yeah. But he's sort of oh, getting out of the country, and it's a long story about him getting out of the country and all that. So. He's actually not back till the end of the year, but luckily we've got a, a guy that I've worked with before. He's uh, a guest guitarist, so and we used him once before when Trevor was away. So um, yeah, so again we've been lucky, and again I suppose the pandemic's been not that much pressure to rehearse. It's a bit like you know we knew it was going to be a while, so been allowed him to come in and sort of take his time as well. Yeah. And, Learn what's actually on the album because that's the key is you've got to play what's on the album, mate, you know. So, well, that's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so again, the pandemic from that angle has been a good thing. So it's been been frustrating but not pressured, you know. Yeah. You know, it's like sometimes you go, oh, we're going on the road in four weeks, you know, you've got to learn it all, you know. Mm. So, um, or we've got a gig or something, you know, sort of where it's, you know, just prodding along every week. And luckily, we rehearse in the studio, so it's that's handy, eh? You know? Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, so you can just rock up and you know, plug in and play, you know. So, um, you know, we're very lucky there for sure. Mm. Yeah, for sure. If you could only offer one tip to a brand new drummer, what would it be? Wow, one tip would be, I suppose, out of anything, at the end of the day, depends where you're going to end up, but if you can learn to swing, play to a click, it's really advantageous. And what I mean by that is you can sort of sit there and you can play to a click track as a robot. So you can get a boom, chuck, boom, chuck. Or you can sort of have that click up in your head where it's, it's just being your metronome and then you can just swing. So you go boom, chuck, boom, chuck. You know, that's, that really pays off because, um, you know, as a drummer, you sort of, you're there to sort of just to swing the groove as much as keep time, you know. So. Mm. Recording-wise, it's really, really handy, you know. It's where a lot of drums fall down, you know. So just get to a point where you can have that click and it's your friend, you know, that allows you to be creative because you go, well, my friend's in my head's keeping me in time, you know, mm-hmm. if I get out, you know. So well, I think that's, that's one of the biggest lessons I had in, in my lifetime as a player, you know, So because I got pulled up when we first did our first album that, well, Willie, you're a bit slow coming back on that snare, you know, after a fill. Mm. And this is the 80s, you know, where everybody's metronome to a click track. And so that's what it was like. And so we actually halted the recording for a while and I went away and played like a metronome four or five hours a day for a few weeks and went back in the studio and uh, made so much difference because, you know, I was fine, you know, like I was just... It was in my head, I was, you know, it just kept me together and I could be creative as well. Yeah. It was a good lesson, you know, so uh, I was very thankful I got that. So that's sort of, I think, 
for any drummer, you know, like sort of. I mean, there's times I don't use a click track, you know, as well, you know, like it's, I actually use a click on stage, but with a um, a foot pedal, mm-hmm. and I can actually punch it in and out. So some songs do need feel, but I think you know if you play a lot and you play a lot to a click, you get a natural. You become a bit of a metronome at any rate. But some songs need that little bit of movement, sort of. So that's fine. So sometimes I might use a click track for the intro of the song or I might actually let the intro of the song really sort of, you know, sort of feel all over the place and then just punch the click in when, when, when verse one starts or something. So it's a little art that sort of I got taught years and years and years ago as well. So um, make the click track your friend. Excellent. Who are your top three local drummers? Um, all right. Look, there's a lot of great drummers. In the I know, world. I know. It's a really horrible question. <laughs> mm. And I've seen a lot of great drummers, but I don't know who they are. So what, I'd, what I'd say is the three drums, uh, the people I know, the people I've heard play on records, you know, one se- a couple of them session guys, I've heard their work, I've seen them play live. So that's where I'll take mine from. So I'd, I'd say... Uh, probably Jack Thompson, who he actually works at a um, uh, the drum shop, but he's got a band called Japan, and um, but he does a lot of session work as well. He's mm-hmm. a great guy, great player. You know, like he's, he's a really, really good player. Good, quite technical as well when he needs to be. Because I'm not really a technical player. I'm a bit, you know, I like to wing it a bit, you know. So. Um, and then you got Con from the drum shop. Like I've done quite a few gigs with Con, you know, and then when he was in um, the Deep Purple show, you know, he used to pull off the solo and all that. Like he's a great little player as well, you know, sort of love his work. Mm-hmm. And then there's another guy, uh, like a local guy here, uh, a guy called Wally Brett, uh, who sort of plays in lots of bands over the years, but he sort of, we did quite a bit of work when he was in a band called Stiff William. They were doing. They were a cover band and they were doing, um, you know, some Aussie stuff and uh, I think they did one White Snake song. They did some really interesting, hard songs and he pulled it off and he just, he's got a great feel as well. Mm. So, so same thing, he just, he grooves it really nicely, you know, so um, doesn't overplay. So, um, yeah. So that's what I, that's, they're the ones, they're just guys I know. But like I said, yeah. I've seen some great players, you know, in bands. And I'm going, wow, you know, that's wish I could do that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know but uh, uh, yeah. So, but yeah, there's some fantastic players around, eh? Yeah. Oh God, gotcha. yeah. <laughs> yeah, they definitely are here for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Okay, Willie, I want you to choose the three most important to you from the following five. Mm-hmm. So we have groove. Yeah. Creativity. Yeah. Chops. Technique and time. Out of those five, which three are most important to you? Well, time, as we spoke, and groove, which I sort of spoke about, and creativity. I think it's really important for drummers to be creative, be musical when you play to a song. Mm. Well, if you're doing I suppose if you're doing originals and all that, but if you well, definitely when you're doing originals, yeah. yeah. That's right. mm. If you're doing covers, it's a different story. And again, a lot of my perspective comes from playing in original bands, like I said, you know, so yeah. I suppose that's where my head's at. And, yeah, I think if you can um, – so if you've got great time and then you can sort of, you know, you can create a groove within that time, again, that allows you to be musical, allows you to be sort of creative within, well, what's the song need, you know? Should I play the riff, you know? Should I – follow what the bass is playing or should I play something counter or whatever, sort of experiment and just be a little bit musical but don't overplay, you know, it's not about you, it's about it's about the band. Mm, you know? Great. If you could invite any musicians to play a concert with you anywhere in the world, you're on the kit, yeah. who would you call, where would it be held and what genre would the band be performing? Okay, um, I would I'd, I'd phone Roger Waters, get him to do the vocals. Mm-hmm. I'd phone Sting uh, to do the bass. Yeah. Uh, not Roger Waters to do the vocals, I mean Paul Rogers. Paul getting Rogers. Roger, <laughs> get, get, getting my Rogers mixed up here. <laughs> so Paul, yeah. 
Now, Roger Waters on guitar. Yeah. Obviously. Sting on bass and Paul Rogers on vocals. Man, that would be like a super group, I reckon. Where? Well, it'd be nice to do something like Wacom in Germany at the big festival. 70,000 people would be pretty cool. Mm. And then it'd be, genre-wise, I think, just some good hard rock blues, which is sort of the roots for those guys to a degree in any rate, you know? So Yeah, yeah man, that would, that would just be fun, wouldn't it? You know, like sort of... Um, because, again, you just got people that are phenomenally sort of groove-orientated and, and creative, eh? You know, I'm like mm. sort of, I've always in my Paul Rogers, you know, I've got to be one of the best singers in the world, that's for sure, you know. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, great voice. That's right, you know, sort of Roger Waters, man. You can't beat his feel, hey? You know, he just does stuff that, oh, you know, it's just, just fantastic, you know. And this thing's a bit interesting, you know, because things just sort of, he's a really, really interesting player. And I've heard him play a lot of different stuff over the years, so mm. uh, a lot of different styles. And, yeah, he's, he's a bit of a unique player, you know. Mm. That's who I'd have. Sounds fabulous. Yeah, sounds like a great band. <laughs> you haven't got any of their phone numbers, have you? I'll, I'll work on that for you. <laughs> cool. No worries. Yeah, beauty. Is there something that you've tried to play that you couldn't get right or you weren't satisfied with the way that you played it? Uh, probably. Um, in the early days, one of my first records was Led Zeppelin, so sort of playing along the bottom was was difficult in, in sort of – and when I sort of checked it out in later years, I could sort of see why, but I was just not – you know, like I was probably 75% there, I reckon – Mm. Could just never get the 100%. Yeah, definitely be, you know, sort of that John Bonham stuff, you know, like he plays some fantastic rhythms, you know. So, And again, it was a feel thing, which I don't think I really had in those days either. As I got older and played more, I've always been able to work something out. Mm. Different drummers can suit your style, you know what I mean? It's like you can, you know, you can do a cover of, like we were doing a lot of Aussie stuff, but the Randy Rhodes period with the Aldridge brothers. So, and I was playing, like Tommy Aldridge to me is not hard to play because it probably fits into my psyche and the way he does feels and goes around the kit and all that. It just seems to be okay to do. Yet then you get some other drummers and it's like, well, I wouldn't play that there, I wouldn't do that here or whatever. Mm. And so you've got to really, really work hard at it, you know, because it's not a natural thing to do. And I think the thing is, when you play in original bands pretty well most of your life and don't do a lot of covers, you tend to slot into your own groove pretty easily. It's hard to get out of that groove, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, that's what I do, you know. Like, Whereas if you play lots and lots and lots of covers, well, then you're playing different styles all the time, eh, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's an interesting thing for players that have always sort of, like, say, my boat where, you know, basically – always played originals and like I said we've done covers and all that but I've never just been in a cover band and had them like go and learn 30 covers you know so mm. uh, it's always just been a bit of a project at the time I mean even the budgie stuff that's been interesting for me because I've had different drummers through those albums um, and they're all different styles and again some of it's piece of cake and other bits you go oh okay well, I've got to work that bit out you know you've got to really think about it you know mm. takes you out of your uh, comfort zone you know yeah Great. Do you ever get bored with your own playing? Yeah, yeah, I do. So sometimes when I try and rehearse play every day, can only do so much, you know, so many times. So sometimes I just go out there and I'll just jam out and muck around and um, do nothing really. I think you can. You can sort of, yeah, I think if you're just constantly doing the same old, same old, same old, I think it's quite natural to get bored with that, you know. Mm. Although, I don't know, some people, you know, I've got a friend of mine plays one of the ACDC bands and has been playing it all his life, you know, so there you go. Yeah. It's, it's fine for him, you know. I think that's why we've always done some covers in our original sets, you know, we've, and you might get bored with the song or something like that, but then you sort of bring something else. I suppose it's the challenge, you know, sort of mm. take you out of, sort of stop you being bored with what you're doing and go on to the same thing all the time, you know, so. I do try and change my fills up when I can, sort of, sort of keep them basically the same, particularly now with the record, say, for example, but I will sometimes just mix it up a little bit, you know, so trying to keep yourself fresh. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? 
drinking pina coladas on a private island every night. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm an older guy now, you know what I mean? I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s now. I play music now. I mean, making now is still a challenge and it's a beautiful thing to do and I love it. If I'm going to make another one, that'd be great as well. If someone said, oh, you know, want to come play Wacken tomorrow, I'd go to Germany tomorrow. So mm. 10 years, I don't know. It's sort of like I think I'll always be playing music somewhere. I suppose what I'm trying to say is I play music now more for enjoyment. I don't have to be a rock star anymore. I don't have to go to Sydney and... You know, try and crack it all. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Sort of, I can just sort of play with my friends and really play what I want to play. You know, it's a bit like, well, this is what we do, you know. like So you sort of come out of the scene of, you know, I don't have to conform as much, I suppose, you know, and I don't have to – I can just do my own thing uh, or the band can do its own thing, you know. So mm. I'll probably keep playing as long as I physically can, you know. So hopefully in, in 10 years that's what I will be doing. Maybe I'll be sipping pina coladas in between sets on a private Maybe, album. maybe. That's it. You never know. You don't, yeah. do you? That's it. That's it. That's it. What do you hope to have achieved before you do lay down the sticks for the last time? At the moment, I would like our Load of Billy album to just do well, well enough to allow us to play some good shows with some good bands. You know, I'm going to get it overseas, so... You know, if it sort of does okay, well, then we'll be happy, you know. Like, it's a fairly honest album, so it's not an ego thing. It's just sort of, well, a lot of work went into it and I think they're sort of fairly decent songs and we've had some good feedback already on it, so mm. without putting it out there yet. And if that allows us, you know, to, you know, get some good supports and, you know, play some better shows or, you know, some festivals or something like that, well, that would be very nice, thank you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, Loaded Billy have got an album out entitled Legend and that'll be out sort of officially probably in about six weeks, I should imagine. Mm-hmm. If you see us out there, we are going to do some on the quiet shows in some smaller venues, so come and say hello. You know, what we were talking about before, it'd be great for people to sort of, you know, including myself, you know, sort of get off the couch and go and support some music again. That's going to be really important. Definitely. Mm. You know, um, there's Loud Tour Studios. People are thinking about, we do this a lot for bands where we'll track drums so we can track live drums and people can take the files home and muck around with it themselves if they want. We track a lot of vocals because we've got some really good vocal stuff going on or we can you know, make a whole record or whatever you like. It's a really relaxed, easy place to work. Uh, young Sam is a brilliant engineer, um, old school, knows all about it himself. You know, We just want to make it a really good experience for people because... That's what I had when I was younger that allowed me to do what I was doing. And I think that gets a bit missed today because people don't do it the same way anymore. Mm. Excellent. Before we end our chat today, I'm going to ask Willie 20 quick random questions or as many as we can get through in the space of two minutes to close the interview. Are you ready, Willie? No, but okay. <laughs> okay. Well, your time starts now. What was the hardest song you learnt to play? Um, the hardest song I learnt to play would be Zoom Club by Budgie. Prior to changing their name before recording their first demo, Budgie had been gigging under what name? Uh, there was Six Foot Budgie, but there was another name, which I can't remember now. Um, Hills Contemporary Grass. Ah, uh, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. That, that was the first name, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, 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 yeah it was. Yeah. What was the first album that you purchased? Led Zeppelin, either three or four I would have got. Name your favourite hard rock band from the 80s. Uh, Rush. Name a band you wish you'd seen play live. Ooh, Rush. The most sticks that you've dropped during a gig. Mm, probably two. The best venue that you've played in. Uh, Springfield's a manzel room. 
What was the first concert that you went to? Oh, um, would be like real concert was Thin Lizzy actually at the old basketball stadium. Name a famous drummer that you'd like to meet. Oh, Neil Peart for sure. What was the first single that you purchased? I can't really remember. I I was always really an album guy, so um, pass. Pass, yeah. yeah. Name a music genre that you don't like. I like all genres, but I wouldn't play speed or thrash death metal. Okay. Name one thing that you cannot live without. Uh, music. Okay, we're at the end. Thank you once again, Willie, for joining me for the Bandit About podcast today. You've been great to chat to, and I hope that everyone who listens finds this as enjoyable as I did. Well, thanks, Dials. Uh, I appreciate you getting me on board to have a bit of a chat. So uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. All of the information and links relating to today's interview can be found in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share the link with your friends. Until next week, it's goodbye from me, Di, banded about, proudly supporting live music. Bye. Bye. faith that there's life after this one. I will answer to him for all the things I've done. My time has come. Raging in the setting sun 
True.